0: Lee Iacocca, for those of you who are old and like me, you know the name. He was the president and CEO of Chrysler for many years throughout the '80s. multimillionaire. millionaire he said something years ago when I was still working at IBM that really caught my ear. He said, "The poor are truly blessed because they have yet to realize that money does not buy happiness." It's an accurate observation given that most people throughout all of human history have spent their entire lives trying to gain happiness or peace or a sense of purpose or meaning from that which we consume, that which we can buy, that which we can eat, money, food, entertainment, success, prosperity, power, you name it. And yet Jesus said clearly in Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What good is an entire life spent trying to get and consume and eat if in the end you die? The story of human history has not changed. Going all the way back to the fall, to the time of Christ, to the 1980s and Leia Iacocca, which... For some of you it may seem like a million years ago, to this hour. Our passage today, it reveals this deadly path of hungering but not being satisfied. And God is so gracious that He offers us another path, which is not death but life. It's not an eternal state of hunger but it's an eternal state of satisfaction and joy and love in the living God. How desperately we, as a people, need to hear this passage. In verse 27, if you have your Bibles open, in John 26, Jesus said, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And so he takes this century-old problem this century old sickness of living to consume. He turns the whole thing upside down and he says, Hear what the Word of God has always said that life is to be lived for the glory of God. Real life is to the glory of God. And by God's grace this morning, you will hear these teachings and you will see that Jesus Christ is that bread of life. He is. So I want to look at the passage this morning by looking at, one, how we work for the wrong food, how we spend time in our lives chasing after all the wrong things. Number two, the good work of faith, And, and that's not heretical. Jesus himself says it here. The good work of faith. And number three, the bread worthy of our work. So working for the wrong food, the good work of faith, and the bread worthy of our work. Are you ready to do some work? It's going to require God blessing my sinful tongue with the ability to preach this and requiring God to take your sinful ears to hear it and then eat it. We're supposed to eat this. So let's do that, beginning at verse 22 in John chapter 6, working for the wrong food. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember that the day prior to this dialogue, Jesus had miraculously fed 20 to 25,000 people by supernaturally blessing five barley loaves or five barley crackers and two pickled fish. The disciples that evening had gotten in the boat and they were headed across the Sea of Galilee. And we know from Pastor Kurt's sermon last week how that played out. Jesus had gone up on the mountaintop to pray and they know he didn't get in the boat. There were no other boats, but Jesus is now gone. They're looking for him because they want breakfast. They want a free meal. And so not understanding where he is we're told in verse 24, they themselves got in the boats that had come from Tiberias and they went to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. When they find him, they ask, Rabbi, when did you come here? And they weren't really asking when, they were asking how because the time period was so short, it didn't make any sense how he was in Capernaum when they had been on the other side of the sea. He didn't get in the boat, there were no other boats, he couldn't have traversed it by foot during that time so they want to know, how did you get here? And we know he got there supernaturally. We know that he engaged in a supernatural act to be in Capernaum at that time. But Jesus was not going to increase their selfish, sinless desire to make him king. That's what they wanted to do the day before, remember? So he doesn't answer them. He doesn't tell them that he went out in the middle of the storm and that he walked on water and that he calmed the storm and that he somehow took the disciples, himself, and the boat and he transported them, teleported them, did something to get them to Capernaum like that. The Bible says immediately, it was instantaneous, it was a miracle. He doesn't tell them that. In fact, he doesn't even answer their question. What does he do? He rebukes them. He rebukes them for coming to him with these sinful, base motives. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, here again, that phrase truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen. He's saying what? He's saying, listen up, this is important. This is important. They're seeking Him, although it had all the appearances of a spiritual pursuit. I mean, after all, this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. It looked good, but He reveals that their motives are purely fleshly, selfish, base motives. They weren't there because they had seen the signs. They weren't connecting the fact that these signs were God the Father's testimony that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They were missing this all together. They were there because their, their bellies were hungry and they wanted food. And they wanted free food. Because not only did Jesus feed them the previous day all they could eat to their fill, but we can pretty much guarantee that was fantastic food. So they're looking for breakfast. And Jesus said, because you ate your fill of the loaves, you're here. Better translated, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. That word filled in the Greek... It's cortazo, and it means it's a coarse word. And whenever I bring up a word like this, it's only because it doesn't translate well into the English. It's a coarse word in the in the Greek, and it literally means uh, fodder or or hay. And so, this is more than just a rebuke of them wanting to eat. Jesus saying, "You are here because you want to be satisfied like an ox or a cow when they're hungry." You desire the base and the low things. You desire a thing like an animal coming here looking for me to feed you. You're not here to have your hearts filled. You're here to have your bellies filled. In other words, he's saying your desires are no greater than a barn animal looking for its next meal. But this is man's plight, is it not? This is fallen man's plight. An entire life Spent, just like these people, they're in the Golan Heights, they look, they're looking for Jesus, he's not there, they get in the boat, they find him, they said, Lord, where'd you go? Are you going to feed us again? We look, the flesh looks for that, that next thing, that next meal that will satisfy that next toy that will bring some satisfaction to that eternal hunger, that next movie, that next piece of music, just somehow to try to to stop that inner restlessness, that inner murmur that's there. I think there's good reason to call Black Friday black. It's well-named when I see the images of people leaving the Thanksgiving table to go stand in these crowds to get 20 or 30% off an electronics device. It's, it's the same thing. They're jumping in the boats and they're heading to Capernaum to get the free meal. Nothing's changed. It's a striking rebuke against these people who the day before wanted to make him king. Now, our Lord, he is the gracious one. And he doesn't leave them with the rebuke. He immediately turns it and he calls them to grace. Look at verse 27. He rebukes them rightly and then he says to them in verse 27, and here's the call to grace. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father has set His seal. This working for physical food, and I want to be careful here, that's not a bad thing. In fact, Paul says clearly in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if a man will not work, he what? He should not eat. So Jesus is not, he's not condemning industry. He's not condemning you working to, to pay the bills and put food on the table and clothes on your back. What he is saying is if your entire trajectory of life, if you get up every morning and your purpose, your telos... Your driving force is to eat and to wear and to live and to entertain and be entertained. He said, if that's it, that you're just to consume, you're just trying to satisfy all those earthly desires and those fleshly fleshly pressures, he says, if that's it, then you're working for the wrong food, because that food perishes. And we can ask ourselves this when we get up and we go to work, why do you go? Is that work your identity? Is that paycheck why you're doing it so you can get that, so you can have that, that next thing that you need to get you through that next hunger? Jesus says there are two types of food, and they're both identified here, one that perishes and the other that remains. Not all food is the same. The food of this life that we work for, that we earn, it's consumed and it is destroyed. It perishes. But then he said, there's a food from heaven that is received. It's not earned. It's taken in. And it lasts forever. It continues on and on. And Jesus says, that's the food you want to work for. Not the food that perishes, the eternal food, the food from heaven, the food from God. And they had come to him. Now remember, these are people who had seen his works. They had heard the gospel message. And it missed them. I mean, here they are before the creator in the universe, the Messiah, the King. They had received the good news, and all they want is breakfast. What's for breakfast, Lord? I mean, those barley crackers were the best I've ever had, and I've never tasted pickled fish like that. What's for breakfast, Lord? It never made it to their hearts, it made it to their stomach, it never made it to their hearts, it never captivated their minds. That message hit their ears and was lost. This, my beloved, it is a catastrophic mistake. For us to be so blessed that we would hear the gospel message given to us by God and then to still chase after the things of this world, it is the catastrophic mistake. And if your primary diet, if the driving force in your life is anything other than the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, then... Listen, you too will perish, that food perishes, and so will you. Most of you have heard the old adage, you are what you eat. That's applicable here. There's so much truth in that statement here. If the food you eat to satisfy your internal hunger, if it perishes, if that food that you go after is success or degrees or physical comfort or intimacy, then you too will perish. You are what you eat. If your chief concern is consuming the things of this world, food and drink and clothes and entertainment and looks and power and popularity, and you can take whatever you need to put on your list that, that satisfies that hunger temporarily. Jesus is saying, if this is what you're running after, it will perish, and therefore so too will you. We know at the end of this life You don't take this stuff with you. We've all been to enough funerals. We've all seen the casket lowered into the ground. That dead body is not concerned about that house they owned or that car that they drove or that job that they had. You can't take it with you. And if that's all you pursue, then in the end of this life, you will have nothing. You'll have nothing. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, he said, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. This is the wrong food. And he says, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's the right food. That's the eternal food. He says, For to set the mind on the flesh is what? It is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Jesus says, do not work for the wrong food. Do not work for the food that perishes, lest you perish too. And it's a warning because he wants the grace to come. He says, work for the food that endures to eternal life. The contrast in these two foods is extraordinary. One satisfies for the moment, right? I mean, the moment. How many of you are still thinking about that fantastic dinner you had three months ago? How many of you remember a dinner you had three months ago? How many of you remember a dinner you had last week? I don't. That food was consumed. It satisfied my belly. It is gone. But not the food that God offers. The food that perishes is for now. The food that God offers is for now and forever. It's now and forever. The earthly food perishes with the consumer Heavenly food, it nourishes the consumer into eternal life. It takes you all the way into heaven. One leads to death, and the other leads to life. Now, we we haven't even heard yet from this passage what the food is. We don't know yet. We'll get there. What we do know is that Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. He says, I'll give it to you. We know that. We don't know what the food is, but he says, I'm going to give it to you. Look at verse 27. The food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. That means it is a gift. It cannot be earned. It is unearned. And therefore, it eliminates any foolish dialogue around this passage that we have to do something. We have to work somehow to get this eternal food, to get this eternal life. It kills this. It's a gift from God to man. And then Jesus says, and by the way, beloved, I have the authority to give it. Look at this verse at the end. It says, on him, Christ is talking about himself, on him, God the Father has set his seal. There would be no greater way in, in their language to express God's approval of Jesus Christ as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, to give this gift of eternal life. No better way. To set your seal on something, it was the king had a signet ring, and they would take wax, and if it was on a, an official document, they'd put the wax on the back where it would seal, and they'd drop the wax, and the signet ring would go on it. That was the king's seal to authenticate that this was from the king, belonged to the king. And Jesus Christ is saying, "I'm the seal." It wasn't that the, the seal was on just on him. He is it. Martin Luther put this beautifully listen. He said this idea of, the, of Jesus being the seal, it is a Hebrew way of speaking to say that our Lord God has a ring, a signet, and a seal on His thumb with which He stamps when He writes and sends out a letter. Now listen to this. Such a seal Christ is to be. Christ is that seal. And He says, and no one else. God thereby rejects and condemns all other seals. No the Messiahs. No other hope. Whoever would live forever must have this food which the Son gives and must be found in the Son who is sealed. Otherwise, he will miss eternal life. The Father has given his seal to the Son and therefore warns us to remain in Christ alone. Why? Because he is the seal. So first, by God's grace, we see Jesus rebuking these people like cows. Cows. He's saying your desires are so base. All you want is the food that perishes. But then he brings it back into the gospel itself. And he says, Stop running after that. Here's the eternal food. Come to eat this, eat this, and live forever. Have eternal life. He offers another way. How do they respond? Look at verse 28, point number two the good work of faith. How do they respond? Verse 28, they said to him, they said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Now I want you to notice, go back to verse 28, the first, they they already start off on the wrong foot. They said, what must what? What must we do? They missed it entirely. Jesus just said that I will give it to you as a gift. It will come from me to you. And they want to know what they can do to earn it. Remember the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19? He went to Jesus and he said what? Do You remember what he said? Teacher, good teacher, what good deed must I do? This is the same mistake that mankind has made throughout all of human history. What can I do? What can we do? What works, plural, can we do to get in? Because we know we've made a mess of it. We know that we've We've destroyed and rebelled against God's glorious creation. So what must we do to make things right? Human history is littered with millions and millions of corpses who tried to work their way into God's good graces, and they perished. Putting ourselves in the position of Savior. Do this, don't do that. If you do this and you don't do that, then you will save yourself, and you become Savior, rejecting Christ as the Savior. In fact, all major world religions, and I would say every offshoot of those religions, teaches salvation by man's good works. Most of you know these, Judaism. How how is someone saved in Judaism? You obey the laws of God and the rabbinical teachings. You you practice religious exercise, and you perform good works. They're called mitzvahs, right? no assurance, though. No assurance. What about Islam? You you must believe that the Quran is the word of God and obey Allah's teachings. The only way in Islam that you can know that you're going to be saved is you become a martyr. Man's doing. Hinduism. You must attain enlightenment and union with the Brahmas through a variety of spiritual paths, and you still don't know. Again, work of man. Buddhism. Overcoming the, the horrible cycle of birth, death, rebirth. You must what? You must exercise perfectly the eightfold path. Do you know what the eightfold path is? Here you go. Ready? Right views, right resolve, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, right answers, right concentration, every moment of every day for the rest of your life. I couldn't go five minutes and get one of these right, let alone all eight perfectly. Man-based. Every major world religion and its offshoots talk about man doing something to be saved. And so they ask him, what efforts must we exert to do the works? And that is key. It is plural of God wrongly thinking about not only a work, but multiple works. What can we do, Lord? What are the things that we must do to have this eternal life, to have this bread, missing completely the incredible, miraculous event that took place the day before, What had they done the day before to deserve the food? What good works did they engage in to receive the blessing of the bread and the fish that came from the hands of the living God? What? Nothing. In fact, we can say it was just the opposite. That they received the blessing of the food, the bread and the fish, was it not? Was it not their inability When Jesus looked upon them as a people without a shepherd and he had compassion upon them because they could not make the food for themselves, they couldn't grow it, they couldn't go get it, was it not their ineptitude and not their aptitude that Jesus Christ said, I've got to feed these people freely? Here, the the very miracle that pointed to their inherent inability to do anything good or anything right to earn God's grace is there before them and they miss it. They miss it. This is a fatal error. I mean that eternally. This is a fatal error. Thinking somehow that we can do something. We are able to do something to earn our way back into the good graces of God. And it's passed down from generation to generation. It looks a little different. Robbie Zacharias says, same bird, different walk. It just manifests itself differently. But a works-based salvation has been at the forefront of man attempting to save himself for all of human history. We ask ourselves, what must we do? We think to ourselves, here's our Western cultural model, oh, I've got to be more generous with my money. I'm sure prayer is involved in there somewhere, so I've got to pray. I've got to do something to help the poor. I've got to sacrifice something, maybe time, maybe energy, maybe food. Maybe I've got to take a pilgrimage to Mecca. Maybe I have to do good to others. Maybe, maybe I need to protect the environment. Maybe that's it. Maybe God's concerned about that more than anything else. Maybe I need to guard my tongue, work really hard, be a good parent, be a good spouse, be a good child. The list is endless. We ask ourselves, what are the works that will please God and grant me entrance into His presence, into eternal life? Jesus' answer sends them reeling because it was, it was counterintuitive to the entire worldview of Judaism. And we can say it was counterintuitive to the entire worldview of human history. Martin Luther was right when he said religion, and he defines that, religion, as trying to earn your way back into God's good grace. He said religion is the default of the human heart. That's what we do. In fact, I would say we do that better than we do anything else. Getting something for nothing, receiving a blessing of eternal magnitude without earning it, this is not a tenable thought to the prideful heart, right? I mean, the prideful heart would say, what do you mean I, I, I need to receive it as a gift? I do nothing? I don't earn anything? Not to be saved, you don't. And if you attempt to, you cannot be saved. If you attempt to try to work for your salvation, you cannot be saved. pride-filled heart must save itself. But only the humble heart can be saved. Look at verse 29. Jesus does, Jesus is so good with the words because He is the Word. He latches on to their term work, but He changes it from the plural, the works of God, to, to the correct singular, the work of God. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, not plural, singular, that you believe in Him Whom he has sent. In other words, Jesus said, there there isn't one thing, there aren't multiple things that you can do to be saved. He said, there's one thing, one necessary condition of salvation. One. And it's not even something independent of God. It's not like Jesus says, go do this, and if man does it, he can be saved. In fact, it says, the work of whom? Of God. What is the work of God? Verse 29 again. Believe in Him whom He has sent. Have faith that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Trust that Jesus Christ and the message that He brings is true. God does not ask us to stockpile our good works and try to do away with the bad in order to enter heaven. He requires the single work... Listen. Listen, please. The single work of trust... Trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save. This is the work of God. Trusting in the one that the Father sent. Trusting in the power in the one that the Father has sent. Trusting in the work of the one the Father has sent. Faith here is called work. But we must remember that in order to believe, in order to be saved, God must give you the ability to believe. Believe. In order to trust in God, God has to give you that trust. It comes from Him. That's why it is called the work of God. The work of God wrought in you, brought about in you, is faith. How is it that one day you believed in Christ? How is it that one day you started trusting in the Lord as your Savior? How is that? It doesn't come from a dead heart. It doesn't come from a sinful mind. It is a gift of It comes directly from the hand of God. The Bible makes it clear that our believing does not come from within us apart from God, that our faith is the work of God. Hebrews 12, 2 clearly teaches that Jesus is what? He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. If you have faith, Christ found that in you. If you keep your faith, he's perfecting it in you. That's an amen, by the way. If we trust in God to save us through Christ... That trust is given to us by God in Christ. It is a gift. And we know this. There are no works to do. There is one work, and that is faith. And that faith is given to us by God. Glorious, glorious God. Not only is it given, but it is maintained. Look, it says, believing in Him whom He has sent. It's this continuous, lifelong faith. In the Greek, this literally means now and forever. In other words, this faith that God has given you, that you now have, if it is a real saving faith, you will have it forever until your faith becomes sight as we just had a chance to sing. That's why Paul says so confidently in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work, what is that good work? That is your faith, that is your trust in Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In Reformed circles, we call this the perseverance of the saints. Simply put, if you are saved, you cannot be unsaved. If God has come to you and wrought in you a trust, a saving trust in Jesus Christ, you cannot untrust Him. You say, well, there are times when I do. I mean, there are times, Pastor, if you only knew, I don't trust, I lack faith. Of course, all of us. How long does it last? A day, a week, a month? And what happens? You turn back again. You turn back because you must you hear Christ saying to, to you, as he said to Peter, are you going to leave too? And you hear Peter saying, where are we going to go? You are the word of eternal life. Where are you going to go? When Christ writes, when God wroughts this true faith in you, you will have it for now, for now and forever. So glorious, it's so glorious. He will sustain that in you. This good work of faith, it lasts forever. It never perishes because it is the eternal food. It is the work of Christ that He imparts to us. can't lose it. So by God's grace, we've seen fallen man's work. It's to pursue the food that perishes and the utter foolishness of that. And we've seen the work that leads to eternal life, not a list of do's and don'ts. We love the do's and don'ts, but the free gift that comes from God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to us And that is trusting in Christ and believing in Christ. And God says, I will cultivate that and I will sustain it for your whole life. I want to look at one last point before I close. And that's this bread that's worthy of our work. The bread that's worthy of our work. Look at verse 30. So they, the crowd, they said to him, then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, here we go. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, listen, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What a powerful verse. They know, they're listening. They know that Jesus is saying, I'm the one that came out of heaven. They get it. In fact, they get it and they challenge him on it. And they bring work right back into it. Work permeates this passage. And they say, all right, what are you going to do What work are you going to do to show us that you really are who you say you are? Because they're making the connection that he's claiming to be the Messiah. They say, what sign will you do to make us, listen, believe? What great work will you do to overcome our unbelief? They're they're being asked to forsake their entire worldview. Religious practice, good works, lots of mitzvahs to get back into the good grace of God follow the law, listen to the rabbis. Jesus is saying, that will not save you. He's saying, you must trust in me. And so they're getting this, they're hearing it, and they're saying, what are you going to do to show us that we should undo our worldview and put our faith in you? At this time, it's important to note historically that many believe the Messiah, when he, when he showed up, was actually going to, to bring back the, the, the miracle of manna That he was going to literally feed the nation of Israel, his people, with manna again. That they wouldn't have to get food. They wouldn't have to work for food. Many believe that. So that's in their mind. Remember, they're still hungry. They want breakfast. But more than that, they're making a direct appeal to Jesus. And they're saying, it's your fault if we don't believe. Listen. Listen. They are blaming Jesus for their lack of faith. They're saying, if you can't show us that you are the Messiah, then then it's okay for us not to believe. And they're putting the blame on him. Essentially saying this, if you would do more, and the you here in the Greek is emphatic. They're saying, if you would do more, show us more convincing works, exercise miracles greater than Moses did, then maybe we will actually believe. It's such an amazing statement given all that he had already done. It's an amazing statement. If Jesus had, at this point in time, given them a list of do's and don'ts, they'd have been tickled pink. They'd have grabbed him, and they'd have run off on their own trying to accomplish their works. But he doesn't. He says, you must trust in me. You must believe in me. It's a violent assertion to them. It's violence to their ears. And so they reject it outright. And they say, if you want us to believe, you better do something. I mean, you better do something way beyond what you already did. But we know, and the Bible clearly teaches, that a man's unbelief in God is never, ever overcome by some miracle, by some trick, by some experience. You remember the great parable that Jesus tells about Lazarus and the rich man? Remember, and the rich man is crying out from Hades, and he says, oh, send someone to warn my family, send someone And then Jesus says this incredible thing. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should what? Be raised from the dead. That would be quite a miracle, the resurrection of someone from the dead. And he says, even that they will not believe. How many Jews, how many Jews in the time of Christ heard that he actually was crucified, that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again? And there was this testimony How many heard that, and yet they refused to believe? Why? No miracle, no book, no pill, no life experience will overcome a man's unbelief. Only God, by making you alive, can you believe. Only God can overcome our unbelief by the power of the Holy Spirit, enabling you to see, to see Him, to see your sin, to see Christ as the Savior. Only God, and only through rebirth, does this happen? We'll look at that next week. But they they are people that are so foolish. They add insult to injury and they call on Moses. Look at verse 31. They call on Moses and essentially they're saying, you're not better than Moses. Look at verse 31. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven. And they're talking about Moses and they're saying this, you know, yesterday, yesterday, Jesus, it was pretty impressive. I mean, there were 20, 25,000 people there. You had five barley crackers, probably stale. You had two pickled fish. And you fed all of us an impressive miracle. But Moses, Moses fed them manna for 40 years in the desert. I mean, certainly, you can do better than this. You multiply food you already had. They're saying Moses brought food down from heaven. They're challenging him because they know that the Messiah, the prophet that would come, the son of David, would be greater than Moses. They knew their Bible. And they're saying, thus far, all due respect, Rabbi, thus far you have not shown yourself to be greater than Moses, and therefore you cannot be the Messiah. Verse 32, here comes the teacher. Jesus said to them, truly, truly. <clears throat> I don't know that was a truly, truly. I think that was a truly, truly. You better listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you. Listen to this. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he says, truly, truly, listen up. You're wrong on so many levels. First, first, It was not Moses who gave their forefathers the bread. It was God. Second, listen, this true bread was not the manna. The true bread that would come down from heaven is Christ. Three, the manna that God gave, that was for physical provision. That was to keep them alive in the desert. This bread from heaven that would come, this is for spiritual provision, for spiritual life. There are many more. I'll give you one more. The manna. The manna was a physical bread for Israel. This bread from heaven, it's a spiritual bread for all the world. Not just for Israel. It's for salvation. They were wrong on almost every single fact of their statement and they were wrong on the general assertion. Jesus is infinitely greater than Moses. Jesus made Moses. Jesus empowered Moses. Jesus told Moses what to say. Jesus picked the miracles in Egypt. It was him. And this bread from heaven that Jesus is offering to them is infinitely greater than a lifetime of manna, infinitely greater, and yet they refuse to take it. You say, take what? We don't even know what it is yet. What is it? What is this true bread that God offers through Christ? We know it's powerful. We know it leads to eternal life. We know that it never perishes. We know that it has the power to not only make a man alive, but sustain that man and carry that man into eternity forever and ever. Whatever this bread is, it's good bread. What is this bread? Look at verse 33. The bread of God is He. Is who? It's Christ. This bread of God, it's not made out of barley, it's made with blood. It's not made out of wheat, it's made out of flesh. It is a person. It's not a a morsel that you take into your mouth and eat and expel. It is a person that you come into intimate relationship with. It is the person who descended from heaven to earth to give life to a dead and dying world. It is Jesus. Jesus is the bread. And we're going to look at this so much more next week. And if you miss next week, well, I guess you can listen to it online. But next week, he just continues with this fantastic teaching. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. His life, His flesh, His blood, His sacrifice on the cross, He gives us the true bread to take in, to eat, to consume, to enjoy, and to live. To really live. Chasing after all the foolishness, all the discounts, but real life, real joy. These poor people, they were thinking with their stomachs. They were just like the Samaritan woman at the well, right? Jesus offers her living water. and She says, give me this water so I don't have to come down to this wretched place anymore. And they say to him, look at verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. And they don't believe him. They don't. They think he's a fool. They don't believe him. But they're thinking we might still get a free meal out of this. So give us the bread. We're still hungry. They're still thinking physical, material, satisfaction. And they say, give it to us always so we don't have to gather and sift and grind and bake instead free bread. They absolutely refuse to accept our Lord's claims that He is the bread of life, that He came from God the Father out of heaven to earth to save them. They refuse it. They will not believe. They understood what He was saying, they didn't want to believe. This is how far they had gotten. All the teaching, all the miracles, the gospel, said how many times by Christ? Again and again and again. And the the furthest they got was their stomach. Still hungry, Lord. Still hungry. So Jesus responds with verse 35, which is the pinnacle verse of the passage. You can say it's one of the pinnacle verses in the book. You can say it's one of the pinnacle verses in the Bible. But he doesn't respond in anger. Notice this. He responds in truth and in love. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them what? He said, I am the bread of life. It's me. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me, he says, shall never thirst. These are glorious words. If you have not eaten these, if you have not meditated on these, please do so today. Take them home with you tonight. Tuck them away forever. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's out of allegory. He's done. He's, I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm talking about. That eternal food that does not perish, it's me. That bread from heaven, it's me. The bread from God, it's me. The manna, it pointed to me. This is the first of seven most glorious I am statements made by Christ in the Gospel of John. It's the first of seven. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am, he says, the true vine. All of them point to his divinity. All of them pointing to him being the savior. All of them pointing to the fact that he came to this world to seek and save lost souls like us. Everyone. By claiming to be the bread of life, he's appealing to the universal hunger, that universal thirst that burns in the heart and soul of every single man, woman, and child. That deep inner restlessness, that deep inner gnawing. We know, we know, we know there's something fundamentally wrong. And if you were like me, I I couldn't identify it, but I knew there was just restlessness, hunger, thirst, always. Couldn't get enough couldn't get good enough grades, couldn't make enough money, couldn't have enough girlfriends. Hunger, hunger, hunger. Christ saying, I'm the bread of life. Eat from me and you'll never be hungry again. This need to know God personally and intimately. The hunger, my beloved, and you know this, the hunger that is there, that thirst that is there, it's not having God. It's not knowing Him as our Father and Christ as our Savior and, and the Holy Spirit as our great Comforter. It's not having God. No intimacy, no relationship, but the very one who creates us and the very one who breathes life into us. It's manifest differently, this hunger, and, and many of us, I know I was, were unconscious to it. We knew it was there, but we didn't know why. But it's there and it drives Everyone. Some hunger and they thirst for fame, others for success, others for power, others for solitude. Some some hunger for friendship, some hunger for just a little bit of physical peace, some hunger for quiet. Every single hunger stems from the same hunger which was produced by us rebelling against God. Everyone, every hunger you've ever had comes from this lack of intimacy with the living God. The ultimate alienation is between God and man. And when that separation took place, we became eternally hungry. As a result of Adam's sin and your own sin, the soul of every man, woman, and child is hungry and thirsty at the deepest level. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the stomach where you eat food and you're satisfied. I'm talking about that soul-burning dissatisfaction. Longing for something more, something so much more. Even Thoreau, the, the 19th century transcendentalist, author and poet, not a believer by any means, he didn't understand how he got this way. He doesn't understand how to overcome it, but he described the condition of man. I remember the first time I read this, it struck me as a non-believer because it spoke to me. He said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. I remember reading it and thinking, that's me. I was 19 and unsaved. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Listen to this. He says, what is called resignation is confirmed desperation. An unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. My beloved, we were created by God in His image to be in an intimate personal relationship with Him. We were to derive our joy, our our purpose from Him. That is the purpose, that's why you were made. That's why every human being was made, for this distinct purpose, to worship God, to glorify God, to serve God, to enjoy God. But When sin came in, it wrecked that relationship and it created this infinite chasm between God, the one who nourishes us, and man, now starving to death, pining away, thirsting and hungering forever apart from God. Quiet desperation, unconscious despair, And you know that this spiritual hunger of which I speak, this deep soul-burning thirst, it cannot be quenched by anything you consume on this side. No accomplishment, no success, no grade, no reward, no game, no amusement can take away that hunger. You've tried it, have you not? If you've tried that, say amen. It did not work. It never works. Never works. The Western world has tried consumption, games, amusement for decades. We try to consume all the world has, and it fails. In fact, we might be able to argue historically that we as a people are the most... Fat, I mean, in terms of just general consumption, most entertained, most amused, and most distracted. Possessing theater and sports and music and food and fashion than in any other time, certainly in the history of our country, and maybe in the history of the world. And we can also simultaneously say, we are the most dissatisfied people. So what do we do? I mean, I, I go out and I, I, get that, I get that thing I want on Black Friday. And, I, and then I open it and I get home, but I wake, I wake up on Saturday morning and I'm still hungry. What do I, well, Cyber Monday. So I go on Cyber Monday and I get online and I, and I order those things I always wanted and then they come in the mail and I'm still hungry. That's cycle. That's a cycle of death. You will never, ever be satisfied by that one next thing, one more thing. And as a culture, The more Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life, the more we excommunicate Him from our lives, from our families, from art, from literature, from music, from politics, from church, the more we kick Christ out, the more hungry we become. And we don't understand it. We say, I don't get it. We got rid of Christ. He was the problem. We have everything we want. We have all the food and all the entertainment, all that we want, and we're still starving. Why? He is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. He's the only one that can remove that quiet desperation in your heart. He's the only one because he's the only one that can reconcile us to God. And the only way the hunger can be overcome is to have God. And the only way we can have God is Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, listen to this. This verse came out at me in a whole new way and I preached an entire sermon on it. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. You know what that's also saying? You hunger and thirst for anything other than the righteousness of God that comes through Jesus Christ, you will forever and ever be dissatisfied. You won't be satisfied on this side of heaven. You won't be satisfied in all of eternity if you do not hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, which you can have in Christ. Now listen, and listen please. If you hunger for God, if you hunger for righteousness, that is a gift from God. And that is quenched in Christ. That hunger and that thirst, you can be satisfied in Christ. Why? Because Jesus just told us, He said, I am the bread of life. If you're spiritually hungry, eat from me and you'll be satisfied. If you're spiritually thirsty, drink from me and you'll be satisfied. Him you will be satisfied because he is the true bread from heaven and he restores the broken relationship. He brings us back into communion with God the Father. The cause of our spiritual hunger is our separation from from God the Father and Christ can overcome that and he overcame it for us in the cross. In Jesus Christ, your hunger can be satisfied because Jesus Christ suffered your eternal hunger on the cross that you might be satisfied. In Christ your thirst can be quenched forever because on the cross He drank the cup of God's wrath. He took the eternal thirst. He drank that for us so that all who repent and believe, all who do the work of salvation which is trusting in Christ may never hunger or thirst again. Ever. The thought is so extraordinary to me. He says if you come to me and you believe in me, I'll take away that quiet desperation, that endless searching for that one more thing. That never comes. Jesus Christ says, "If if you come to me and eat the bread that I offer, I will bring into your life the love of God. I will bring into your life the presence of the Holy Spirit. I will bring into your life grace and peace and joy, unlike you've ever known of any kind before, you yeah, had greater joy than that day you got that greatest present. Right? A greater satisfaction than the day you consumed that best meal of your life. A greater quenching of that thirst in your soul than when you met that person to be your husband or wife. Than when your baby was born. And when you got that job you always wanted, when you finally finished school, all those great things and so many are blessings that brought joy and peace temporarily. Christ says, you come into my presence with my Father, and I'm talking about a forever and ever satisfaction, no hunger, no thirst ever again. I don't want to eat the food that perishes. It's all I do. I want to eat the food that leads to eternal life. Jesus invites us this morning. Look again at verse thirty-five. This is not just a declaration of who he is. He said, "I am the bread of life. Whoever what? Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst." Why? He accomplished the work on the cross. He did the work, and what he's saying is, "I'm going to give it to you. I will impart it to you. I've done the work, but I will give it to you if what? If you come and you believe." Come to me, Christ says. Come to me. Die to yourself. Enough of that life. Enough of, of pursuing all the things that never satisfy. He says, come to me and eat. And If we do, if we forsake the old man and we come to Christ and we submit to Christ and we follow Christ... We, we learn his word and we do his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ says, I will take that nagging hunger and I will chip away at it every day. Away, away, away. And I will put a hope in you that will compel you to chip away at it too. Jesus says, if you come to me and you believe in me. You tr- that, that means trust in Christ. I mean, you trust in Christ with everything. You say, I trust you with my life. I trust you with my eternity. I trust you with the meal that I need tonight. I trust you with my relationships. I trust you with my church. I trust you with everything. You do that. Christ says, I will take away your thirst and hunger forever. This is an amazing promise. An amazing promise. God says, I will take away that quiet desperation. I will overcome that unconscious despair. Christ says, you want to live? Come to me. You want to overcome your hunger and thirst? Believe in me. And yes, it is that simple. It's trust in Christ. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't. Some of you I've known for 20, 30, some 40 years. God knows where you are. What I do know is that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. I know that. And I believe this promise. If he says, you come and you believe and he will save you, you will live. You will live today and forever. Why? Because the food from heaven lasts for eternity. It never perishes. It means we can know him and worship him and enjoy him as Lord. The only hope you have of overcoming eternal death, hell is this bread of life. The only hope you have of not eking your existence out here on this side, constantly hungering, constantly thirsting, constantly wanting is the bread of life, Jesus Christ. He's your only hope, now and forever. And what a glorious hope he is. What a glorious hope he is. My beloved, as we go into this this season of utter chaos, where people Run around like they've never had anything in their lives. You think we are a third world country, just buying and consuming and buying and consuming. As you enter into this season, I want you to contemplate not Jesus Christ as the incarnate baby, contemplate him as the, the bread of life that can come into your life and in your family's life and into this very church and satisfy that hunger and thirst that gnaws away at our souls, that He can come and can do a mighty work here. I pray that you this morning, that you'll come to Christ and you'll bow your knee. And If you don't know Him, if you don't know this satisfaction, that you'll repent and believe and that He will heal you of your sins and that you will have Christ and the Holy Spirit and you will, for the first time in your life, you'll know what it means to be well-fed because you'll have the bread of life. Saints, I have preached to many people over the years in this church that did not know Christ and thought they did. There are people who have left this church professing Christ. They've never tasted the bread of life. If they had, things would be different. Do not, do not leave this place without knowing this deep in your soul Saying Christ is my life. I have eaten from the table of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we know that sin is so deceptive. We will hear these truths come from your word this morning and yet we'll go home tonight or we'll wake up tomorrow morning and we will continue to pursue all that food that perishes. we will say, if I could just have that. I pray, Father, you would once and for all in the hearts and minds of your children dispel that great lie. It comes from the pit of hell. The only one can save us from our sin, the only one that can deliver us into eternity, the only one that can overcome that hunger and thirst that continues to burn is Christ. Be gracious with us, Lord. Come to us and feed us as you did the multitudes on that day. Feed us with the true bread from heaven, not the manna, but Christ. And as you feed us, Lord, I pray that we would eat that we would eat, and we would eat, and we would eat. Nourish us and grow us as a people. that We might become so satisfied, so secure, so well-fed in the Lord that we are transformed from the inside out, becoming that holy people that you've called and ordained us to be. Father, do that work. Feed us today. Feed us, Christ. We don't demand it, for we have no right. We ask it. We know that you are a gracious God and you give to those who ask such things. So we ask, humbly, in Christ's holy name, amen.